Oh, there we go. That means if I press that button, we are we're live. We're live in front of an audience of hundreds. No, not quite yet. Um, hello, everyone. Good evening. Um, welcome to Rail Matter. Uh, it's uh, the, the tonight is going to be uh, not a subdued one, but I, I've I, thankfully Bonnie is here. Hi, Bonnie. Hello. <laughs> Thankfully, Bonnie is here to keep, to, to keep me right because um, I'm recovering from what was quite a nasty fever and goodness knows what other ailments tied in with it. So I have no idea what's going on. Uh, my brain is fried. Um, my body temperature is not capable of regulating itself. And I have a lot of water to hopefully keep me alive. So um, this could be an interesting one. Uh, but it'll be fine because all of you are going to keep me right. Bonnie's going to keep me right. And it's it's a news episode, so I don't have to create any particularly structured arguments. I just have to say things and um, and we can chat about them. It's going to be a nice, chatty, chatty uh, episode. Um, uh, hello, Gareth. Yeah, happy St. Doinian's... I, I can't... Doin Wednesday. I, 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 Doin Wednesday. It's Doin Wednesday. Sorry. Uh, see, brain fried. It's doing really well. Um, right, anyway, before I uh, whiffle on, yeah, Scotland has Burns Night, Wales has Carpet Burns Night. Uh, Randy, yes, good. Uh, fantastic. Thanks, Gareth. Right, anyway, enough of this. Uh, so, as is traditional, it's episode 150. It's the 150, well, actually, technically, it's the 151st episode if we count episode zero. But it is episode 150, which is quite exciting. We've done 150 of these bloody things, which is remarkable. Um, Crikey. And things are going just great, which is what this episode is going to be. Um, uh, oh, there's a nice critical beep noise. Why is... Go. Oh. Uh, PowerPoint's not very happy. No, bear with me. Bear with me a sec, everyone. In fact, I'm going to go big... I'm going to go both of our faces briefly, uh, just to, to occupy the screen while I work out why uh, PowerPoint is broken. Look, it's me and Bonnie. Look, isn't that great? Hooray! We're holding the holding Hi, screen everyone. while I make that work. And then go to yeah, there we are. Everything's working fine. Look, it's us, and then it's not going to be us again because I've I've got it working. I think now. There we go. Right, good. It's a it's a class one fifty. Um, because it's episode one fifty, so it's class one fifty. Uh, lots of things are interesting in this uh in this picture. One of them is this is Preston Station. Uh, it's Preston, as you can see. There's Preston. Also, this shocking mess of a double arrow. That's not a double arrow. It's very, very, very much too much thin. Uh, that'll become relevant later in the episode, folks. Um, but also, it's got the funny Sprinter logo with the with the weird Sprinter that they had. But it's a 150. It's it's the first of the Sprinters. And it, this harks back, kind of in a nice way, right back to like the one of the earliest episodes we did on Class 158, which I think was like episode three or something like that. It was, uh, it was early, early days. Um, anyway, so... Uh, enough of that. Enough of that waffle. I don't really have much else to say about the 150 other than it's still running in a few places. Uh, golly. Um, yeah, right. Anyway, enough of this waffle because uh, we're going to talk about the news uh, in, in just moments. Everyone, welcome to tonight's Rail Matter. City two two five fading away. Bonnie, what you missed there was my usual news gag, which is where it starts with the with the with the engine theme tune, but then partway through a rather ill balanced and very loud um, version of the Channel Four news theme tune uh, kicks in to just scare the willies out of everyone. Anyway, um, before we talk about the news and talk about the fact the railways are still in chaos mode, let let let's get Bonnie back. Bonnie, hello. 
Hello. <laughs> it sounds like you've also been ill this week. So we're both yes. we're both in, in, a, in a bad way. All over the country is suffering with winter RSV flu virus thing. It's it's not nice. It's it's doing the rounds and uh, it's it's frying everyone's brains. While the two of us are still basically uh, compass mentis, Bonnie, uh, Bonnie, you're a, a returning champion, Bonnie, Bonnie Price. Um, Bonnie, do you want to introduce, reintroduce yourself to the to the good folks uh, listening and watching, uh, just in case they've jumped in and haven't and have managed to miss episodes that you've been in? No worries, no worries. Thank you. Uh, so my name's Bonnie Price. I am the current um, national vice chair for the charity Young Rail Professionals. We're a not-for-profit charity that supports young people, getting them into railway, inspiring people who are already in railway, giving them opportunities, things like that. Um, generally, we're just a bunch of enthusiasts for all things rail. However, please don't ask me about trains because I actually don't know anything about trains. I'm all about train stations, which is probably even nerdier. Yeah, I was going to say that's the good. That's the good detailed stuff. We we like we like people. Well, I, people often say, "Yeah, you're a train nerd." I was like, "No, I'm a railway nerd." Actually, um, I I might well have some knowledge of trains, but my knowledge of railways is is far greater. Um, so yeah, Bonnie, it's a pleasure to have you along. Um, f- for this one, I mean, it's it's an unusual. It's a, it's a rail matter first in the sense that you're um not presenting a thesis of your own tonight. Um, you're uh, we're, you're simply joining me to. To just have a chat, do some general chat over the news, which is quite nice. Um, That's what we're in. We're here to have a rail matter. We are here to have a rail matter, precisely. Uh, yeah, for those of you enjoying it, when the people watching the show say the name of the show, uh, doing the show, say the name of the show, then we've done that. Um, if you uh, if you have a question, by the way, folks, uh, feel free to at my name, and then it goes shows up brightly in red in the YouTube chat. Hello, everyone in the chat, um, and then we can answer your questions. However. We shall press on by making our faces small and miniaturized and then having a look at the news slides. Um, so we start with a very broad topic, um, which I've summarized by using Train Beacon's sort of nice Twitter outputs uh, where they show kind of how much Transpennine Express um, uh, and Northern have been letting the side down in terms of reliability of, of, of service. Cross country, not great either. And then Avanti, not, also not great, uh, relatively speaking. But this is the, the, the railways are still in calam- very much in calamity mode, um, and I thought, yeah, Bonnie, before to kick off, do you have thought? Have you been caught up in the mess at all? Have you managed to avoid getting snarled up too much in the in the railway mess? I mean, in life, generally, no, because it's where I work. But <laughs> yeah, quite. But uh, no, I think in terms of t- journeys and things like that, I've been fairly lucky in terms of you know around the various strike action and things like that. But I think generally with you know, the modes of transport changing for a lot of people who are now working from home. I don't think it's a reasonable expectation to expect things to return to pre-pandemic midweek because there is no longer for many, many, many different industries a standard commute anymore. And I I think we need to be focusing more on leisure travel in terms of getting people using trains for their leisure travel, for their holidays across the country and things like that, rather than getting them on cars again. Don't want that. Yeah, I, I suppose one of the challenges with that is that that's true. That that, that shift in travel patterns is true in and around south, the southeast and, and around London. But actually, in across the north of England at the moment, commuting is is back to is essentially back to where it was pre-pandemic um, on on the railways. So there's this mixture, and and so so whilst we have this these changing patterns, actually it's more of an acceleration of of, of pre-COVID uh, sort of trends, like the um, like that reduction in 
um, as you say, that reduction in tr- the traditional commute, the, the season ticket commute, um, particularly into the city, into London, um, that's that's certainly ebbed away. But actually, outside of outside the M25, those the, the 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 less traditional commuting numbers are actually surging quite substantially. So it is a complicated picture, and there's I suppose there's a risk if we overfocus on leisure that we um, that we we end up making rail services kind of not quite satisfy the requirements of everyone. So there's a, there's a, there's an interesting debate. The key challenge, though, I think, is that we have to look at the data. We have to look at the the, the travel data and understand uh, what that kind of what the what the uh, the needs of people wanting to travel are. Um, and that will come up in the news shortly, everyone. In that uh, not having uh, not having um, uh, yeah. Uh, not having imported the right data to make transport decisions is a thing that this government is enjoying doing, but we'll we'll touch on that later. So yeah, chaos mode. We've still got. We've, have we got actually? Have we got any strikes booked in in the next? Um, uh, have we? Uh, yes. Yeah, we do. Uh, so the first of February and the third of February at the moment are currently anticipated strike dates that have been released, uh, unless of course there is a deal reached between yeah. the RMT and the government. That would be nice. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, it would help. Uh, it would help if uh, people were actually engaging with unions rather than just going on different chat shows going, we just can't get a deal done. Well, you have to meet each other to get a deal done, first of all. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. And it's, yeah, this, this, I was on Trash Future a couple of weeks or a week ago. And, um, and, and that, that what we kind of within Trash Future, we were capturing the fact that the, the DFT, after a couple of fairly calamitous appearances in front of the Transport Select Committee, were actually starting to shift their uh, shift their negotiating stance slightly in that they were freeing up the talks to do more negotiations, which is still slightly moot, but at least it's a step in the right direction. And Absolutely. and also have kind of moved the RDG to one side a little bit, which is also a good thing because the RDG are a, a waste of time um, in terms of managing the strikes. Uh, that's my opinion. It doesn't necessarily uh, isn't necessarily Bonnie's. Everyone just uh, just just saying. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so yeah, lots, lots of, uh, lots of them. Yeah, I was going to say place. Yeah, John Christoph pointing out the similar in North America. Um, places with dedicated commute networks are still below 2019 ridership, while places with all-day services has, have uh, close to as many riders as ever. Yeah, absolutely. So of course, there's lots of other. Oh, go go on, Bonnie. Sorry, in terms of North America, you've just sort of bumped something loose that I thought about in my head earlier in the week. Is that all through winter? You know, we have constant disruption, and I find it. I find it quite nationally embarrassing, if I'm honest, that considering that our weather patterns are not that extreme compared to the likes of North America, obviously in terms of Canada, I appreciate they don't have as much rail network as we do. However, they still do have significant rail networks that manage to run through winter. And I, I find I just find it very embarrassing that every single winter it's, oh, the extreme weather. I'm sorry, it's not extreme, it's just winter. I appreciate there's an element of climate change to our winters that are making them harsher. However, we can't get to every winter and go, oh, sorry, guys, there's just no trains between London and Newcastle this weekend because, you know, the weather. It's just not acceptable. And I find it incredible that every winter we have the same discussions within the industry going, oh, well, you know, there was some snow. But the thing is, Bonnie, is that we get told off when we, inv- and I'm, do- I'm using scare quotes here, gold plate the, the network so that it can be resilient against these these weather patterns. We get Absolutely. told off when we do that. We have to we have to we have to uh, go for a minimum viable product, which will work under um, some circumstances, but not all. Um, yeah, it's it, 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 it it's highly highly frustrating. Um, there's uh, yeah, in terms of in terms of various people 
yeah, I, I was worth saying, of course, is that there are loads of other people striking outside of the railways. Um, as Tom is pointing out, teachers, lecturers, civil servants, um, lots of people out on strike on the first, which is good. Um, hi, Richard411, by the way. Uh, welcome. First live stream you've watched. Came over from Trash Future. But welcome. Uh, we're, we're both waving. Um, yes, so... Uh, yeah, it's for, it's a good point actually. The winter, the winter calamity. But at the moment, most of the chaos is through um, staff shortages and like rostering that's not quite right, and driver training is still causing headaches. Uh, it is very straight. I have not got a you know we've yet to see a straight answer from Transpennine Express as to why their service is so shoddy. Is there a quite, it's, it's quite often two hour a two hour delay between like, a two hour gap between services, which is that's just not acceptable. Yeah. That's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. I mean, the yeah. thing is as well, we have this. We're going to come out of winter. We're going to come out of these driver shortages and rostering issues and everything else. And by the time that all of that sorts itself out, best case scenario, that's by summer. Then we'll get to peak summer, and we'll get oh, it's too hot for the trains to run due to the uh, the tracks potentially buckling. So we're just not going to run any trains because it's too hot. I mean, if we keep constantly going for this minimum standard where, oh, OK, you know, we're going to keep building everything to the absolute minimum standard and not future proof anything. We're going to get to the point where there are less days of the year that trains run than there are when they don't run. And that's just that's just not acceptable. I don't understand how, as an industry, we can keep strategizing that way that the minimum standard is the acceptable standard that we should be aiming for. Ah, but yeah, but the, the, the Treasury don't want us to spend any money. That's the that's the key thing. And then it's not even that, though, because it's because it's entire we've institutionalized and, and we'll touch. In fact, you know what? That's a perfect segue into what I think is the next slide. We, we industry has absolutely constitutionalized itself um, into the idea of, you know, we've got very senior people in the industry cascading out that oh, government's finances in a very tricky situation. They've got no money. And therefore, we as a railway need to tighten our belt. Um, just worth saying, the UK government, uh, or the exchequer, is currently earning more than it ever has in history in tax take. Um, the, the, since the last... Sorry, you can tell everyone, you can tell my brain is slightly fried. Um, since last year, the, the tax take has gone up by nearly by over 11%. We earned £60 billion more in taxes this year than last year. Um, so we have plenty of money. There is plenty of money to spend if it's uh, so. So the idea that, that, that this and and it, and it feeds back exactly into what you're saying, Bonnie, is that we've kind of institutionalised this idea that we need to that we need to stop asking for and and pushing for and making the case for expanding and improving the railway network, and we just have to make do with them um, not being given anything. It's very perhaps frustrating. Perhaps people need to perhaps people need to shake the magic money tree a bit harder that is government and explain that if you keep spending a penny every day rather than just spending a pound once you'd save money in the long term and explain it perhaps a bit more forcefully to people who aren't necessarily within the railway and don't understand how it works because it isn't obvious how it works isn't obvious and i think a lot of people in the railway take it for granted that we all get it because we all work in the railway whereas people outside of the railway don't necessarily understand okay we can rip the plaster off now and you know spend x million here or Every 50 days, we'll be spending 50 grand doing temporary repairs, bus replacement services, and etc. As an example, and I just don't, I just don't understand how people who are seen, who are senior within the industry, who have these lines with government and treasury, aren't necessarily taking a harder stance on it collectively. Yeah, it, 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 I have to say, it frustrates me that the industry's bosses are not more assertive. And part of that is related to the industry structure. If we had an autonomous rail industry structure, you know, if we had a, a, a 
basically, if we had a system more like how the railways were pre-Railways Act 93, where you you had essentially an autonomous body that that basically fought its corner and was quite good at doing it um, and was on top of everything. So it could kind of make the case more strategically about if you spend this money here, it will make all of these savings cascading through industry rather than just you know if you have the track and trains uh separate you don't get the benefit of saying well if we you know we make all these savings if we electrify then the the maintenance of the trains and everything is reduced well it's difficult to make that case to to treasury when everything's completely atomized so yeah this this news article is that government uh, is earning more than ever um andy verity who's um a a shining light in the BBC, actually, and very good at cutting through a lot of the economic uh, rubbish that gets um, bounced around by government in terms of, you know, suggesting that we don't have much money. Um, so, yeah, very worth worth uh, giving Andy Verity a follow if you don't already. But, uh, yeah, government is earned, the UK government is earning more than ever. Yes, as others have pointed out, they are, um, they are uh, burning more than ever on uh, their own bad policy decisions. But, um, yeah, well, there's only so much you can do, right? Uh, but it's a bit like when it's a bit like when I have discussions with people in Transport Scotland, and they say, "Well, you can't. We don't have the money to spend this on that on on railways." And I point out that three billion pounds is being spent on dueling the A9. So uh, yeah, no, there's plenty of money. It's just not being spent cleverly. Um, and then on the back off the back of that, I'm afraid to say, is the idea that um, uh, is is this is they keep saying it, and then they keep t- talking about big proposals, and then they keep saying it. The likely next government. Which will be like very likely be a Labour government, um, if something unless something dramatic happens. And they they they've used this phrase that they're not going to open the big government checkbook um, to repair Britain's faltering public services. Now that's that's precisely what you have to do. These things don't just get fixed by a magic wand. They, you don't fix them by magic. You fix them by investing. We have to invest. We've not invested for twenty years. Uh, I, I, I so I, I despair seeing headlines like this because I wonder if it's. I sincerely hope it's a ploy to yeah. try and steal more conservative voters, but also think about the amount of Labour voters like myself who are looking at this going, no. Yeah, just despairing. It's like, I want there to be some hope for the future, and there's so much that needs fixing. The reality, And the other, you put to one side all the fact that you invest and you get returns on all that investment and you grow the economy and, and, the, and it pays for itself fairly quickly. Put that to one side. The reality is that there is no other way to fix a lot of these problems. You need to employ more nurses. We need to employ more doctors. We need to employ more staff on the railways. You know, the, these things cost money, not to mention the physical investment in, in you know, in the railways, track and trains. Anyway, so that's frustrating. Um, all right, wildly swinging over and, and, and jumping over to Poland, in fact, um, uh, because, and I thought this was an interesting one that someone had, someone had sent me and pointed out quite an interesting thing. Here's... Um, uh, Lukasz Malinowski here pointing out that um, <clears throat> intercity fares are rising by nearly twenty percent on some of the uh, on some of the services in in um, uh, in Poland, and that's pretty much entirely because of energy costs. Um, and, and the reason I put this in here is because this is happening across Europe, but it's partic- but it's also happening in the UK because once again we're seeing a situation where diesel trains are being put in front of electric service of formerly electric freight services diesel trains are being swapped in for electric trains because the electric rates are going up and diesel is not you know because network rail is charging a certain amount for electricity off the back of the 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 electricity costs that it's receiving which means we're going backwards in terms of decarbonization of freight we're having diesel trains class 66 is hauling things where once it was 90s and 88s so hmm yeah not good this is happening in lots of countries across Europe, but it's particularly acute in the UK because of our um, interesting decisions about energy policy. 
Uh, I don't know. Have you have you um, have you been hearing much about? It? In fact, I know that you and I have a, a mutual friend who is um, despairing about certain elements of uh, of energy policy on on UK railways. But um, uh, yes, it's. Oh. <laughs> I, uh, I live on a freight route, and even even just yesterday, I was there was a freight train in the platform outside of my house, and it was a, felt a bit like the old man meme of like get off my lawn. I was like, why is it here? Why has it been stuck here this whole time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to find on WhatsApp groups, like, what the hell is this train doing here, running, not moving for over an hour? It turned out there was a line side fire further up the line. Nobody was hurt. Everybody's fine. But additionally, why are you just leaving a diesel freight train running in a residential area? Yeah, like, I was- I always wonder that. Like, there is stop-start technology for de- for locomotives now. Like, they they could they could be doing that. The answers um, I get given are always, "We have to leave them running in case we turn them off and they don't start again." And I'm yeah. just like, "Oh, it's not the 1960s. The 66 <laughs> is a reliable vehicle. Like, come on." No, but if just... you if you think it's that bad, you shouldn't be allowed to take it onto the track. Yeah. I'm sorry. If if I said to a police officer, I can't stop my car because if I stop it, it might not start again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. I'd be having, I'd be charged with having a dangerous vehicle in public, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. just, I don't understand how it's remotely acceptable to have that answer. Yeah, it's, it's Dulali. Yeah, agreed. I feel like that's what I'm going to keep saying for most of this episode. I don't understand how this is remotely acceptable. It's the rail that away. Um, exactly. So, uh, getting into really fun stuff about this, the current government is uh, their whole policy uh, is is based around more cars. Their whole transport policy logic is based around uh, more cars, and um, I, th- I believe Luke Murphy here um, from the IPPR is. Uh, I think Luke Murphy. Luke, I'm sorry if you're not from the IPPR. I've, I, my brain is fried. I believe you're um, in the IPPR. Anyway, the IPPR have done some analysis of, of, of DFT outputs. I believe this analysis is actually from the DFT outputs um, that Greg Marsden chased for uh, from Leeds ITS. Greg Marsden was chasing government, which is in a news article in a minute as part of this kind of segment. Um, basically. The projection, of, the government's projection, is that it is not that they're going to bother to reduce, you know, sorry, uh, is is create policy to limit or reduce or um, kind of otherwise deflect road usage. But uh, oh, thanks, thanks, Bonnie. Oh yeah, but everyone heard the little Skype message there. That was Bonnie. That's Bonnie sending me pace notes so that I, to help me out because my brain is fried. Thanks, Bonnie. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, yes, so Luke is indeed uh, does indeed work for the IPPR, so that's fine. Uh, you, can you see the beads of fever sweat running down the side of my head, everyone? It's good stuff, isn't it? Anyway, who's eating in a cost of living crisis? Just what, get a fever. Well, that's it's it. It works. It works. It works really well. Yeah. Um, so we have. Uh, yeah, we've got the kind of as you can see here. Uh, this is this is kind of their core scenario, which is a growth of what is that? A hundred. Uh, an, an additional hundred billion vehicle miles, bonkers. Um, they've got a variety of other. They've got like the technology one, which is to do with uh, autonomous vehicles, which is we'll get to that in a minute because modelling policy on a thing which will never exist is doolally. Um, we've got their their like behavioural change one, which still includes uh, increasing cars, but they have modelled they have modelled and and and, and are basically or sorry they have not modelled any any possible future where we reduce car usage. They haven't modelled a single one, which is like rather depressing for the Department of Transport to 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 not see a future where we aren't still driving more cars around. So it's really really worrying and frustrating. Um, 
Yeah, uh, uh, Lou Murphy points out here, recent updates, the national road traffic projections show how far the UK has to go in addressing the underlying causes of increasing traffic. Yeah, really depressing. Um, and related to that is the fact that uh, a, the uh, Road Investment Scrutiny Panel, which I think is a self-titled uh, group of, of kind of senior professionals and engineers and, and, and other, other academics and folks, um, have been uh, are kind of challenging government on its massive road investment strategy program. So, you know, the program for building many, many, many ro- more miles of roads to account for this growth in, in, in traffic. Um, and 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 the, the kind of this panel, this group has basically they've, they've published a report which which maybe we'll do a page turn of it actually. Key questions for road investment and spending, um, and they pointed out that there are um, serious problems with the government's current proposals, and that there is a serious gap. Um, well, basically to highlight it's a, in particular, I'll, I'll quote a new civil engineer here. Uh, this is Catherine Moore. Hello, Catherine. Uh, in particular, it highlights the panel's concern that investment to generate enhanced road capacity for motor traffic and the assumptions on future road use on which this is based may run counter to the course we need to steer to meet our decarbonisation obligations. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and related to this, Bonnie, don't worry, I'll, I'll deflect in your direction momentarily because these all tie together. Um, related to this is the fact that government has been blocking um, access to the underlying data behind its transport decarbonisation plan. It's actually been blocking it. Um, why, you might wonder? Uh, oh, this is Greg Morrison, by the way, Dr. Greg Morrison from Leeds ITS, who has finally managed to, to break DFT, and they did finally publish a fairly limited um, version of their analysis underlying the, the, the traction... No, not traction. That's the network rail report. The transport decarbonisation plan. Um, and within this... I mean, I'm waiting for Greg to do an analysis of this because it'd be good to get Greg on, actually, to talk about it. But in amongst this are a variety of very worrying things. Um, so if, when you look at the high travel demand, it's the fact that the, the, the fact that government is looking at continuous, uh, sorry, connected autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars, as a as a viable technology. Why why are we considering this as a viable technology? And, and making this enormous grand leap of uh bonnie this is maybe a, you can you can vent frustration with this with me in a second oh why is government policy uh accepting the idea of magic fairy dust technology that literally will never like autonomous vehicles will never exist in a way that um other than lane assist they just won't exist and why are they modeling that and yet they're incapable of modeling a future where we actually electrify the rail network like just this, 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 this disconnect in, in sort of ma- modeling magical futures for car policy. Oh, this feels like the governmental policy equivalent of the uh, the character from Wimpy when he's like, "I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today." You can't just keep putting all of your hopes and dreams for decarbonization onto autonomous vehicles that don't exist. Yeah, they don't it's exist. Not, exactly. It's not. No, but also, not only does it not exist. Electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles are also not the actual entire fix in terms no. of decarbonisation because, again, you have a lot of problems in terms of the mining for lithium well, for the batteries that are used for that, which is a horrendous practice in a lot of countries. You know, from a geopolitical perspective, it's pretty yeah. disgusting some of the practices used in many lithium mines across the world. And it's not necessarily, you know, I think in when we look back historically, we will look back at electric cars the way people look back at blood diamonds. I know that's quite a, a quite a strong statement. It's what I think is going to happen. Sort of in 50 years' time, people will be looking back at the industry going, I can't believe those practices were happening. It's you know, an absolutely it's, it's classic example of the rich parts of the world 
going if you like the global like north but but it's the rich parts of the world going we don't want to change our behavior so electric vehicles are going to be the way we don't change our behavior how we create the batteries for those is by going to poor countries often in the global south but also in other you know more, closer to home serbia is a good example and we're going to just devour those countries nat- natural resources in this case of lithium it, it, it yeah exactly and indeed you know perfect segue because the next slide i've got kind of continuing this theme is is uh, daniel aldana cohen has, has uh, done some done some kind of interesting work there's a guardian article that kind of captures the the research paper looking at the the impacts of uh, you know the amount of lithium needed and we've seen reports report after report about the fact that in order to satisfy you know the the, the whole planet's demand for electric vehicles we don't have enough lithium on the planet let alone the ability to safely and, 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 and sustainably mine it. So the idea that we're basing all of our transport policy on that is absolutely mind-blowing. It's embarrassing. It's, 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 embarrassing. it's, just, it's just what... It's not possible. It's just like... It's, it's going to be new colonialism. It, it's just... We're, we're going to be going and, and essentially... It's already like, happening. It's already that. new colonialism because there are already lithium mines that where people are losing their limbs and not being paid and are migrant workers who cannot leave the mine that they're working in because their documents have been taken by management slash confiscated by management. You know, it's, it's horrendous. It is new colonialism already. And that's why I made the connection to blood diamonds, because I do think we're going to look back in 50 years, 80 years, maybe a bit longer. And there are stark comparisons between both industries. And it's, you know, it's horrific. And yeah, it's horrific it's- that more people aren't talking about it, to be honest. Yeah, and, you know, and, and and the the idea that that's the whole shape of our um, of of transport policies around that it, it's 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 it needs to change. And the reality is that it's not it's not going to change anytime soon. It's it's really very frustrating. James Derrick is pointing out lithium is used to refine petroleum and batteries use lithium ions, so around one percent by weight. Um, yeah. So uh, what else are we saying? Uh, Gregor is saying a modelling modal change would require assuming government does invest in rail. Well, quite. Um, yeah, bingo combo, wage slavery, and new age colonialism. Absolutely, N zero zero N zero one. Yeah, uh, EVs. It's it's not. Yeah, some people. Are, James is possibly trying to. Uh, James, I'm not sure. I'm not sure quite what point you're making, James. But um, the point is that we need to be the, the EV policy and a pro EV policy is one where we keep doing everything the same. This is not being against. Oh, it's not so much being. You know, the the future of cars might well be electric vehicles, but the uh, you know whether it's battery or hydrogen. But it is the future of transport cannot be private individual transport because we don't have the resources to to do it. So the the trouble is, this EVs are being used to continue to facilitate and as a business as usual approach to transport policy, and it's just not it's not viable. It really is not viable. I think additionally to that, our transport policies also look in terms of how can we do things like we've always done, but actually as the consumers and people using that transport, we don't need individual cars, nor do we want individual cars to get around everywhere. I appreciate everything in transport that DFT does is often very London-centric, so please excuse me for the little detour to London, but I live in Zone 3 London. There is constantly traffic. Everybody who lives here hates driving, doesn't want to drive, but the bus routes don't run very late. The trains don't necessarily go where they need them to go. Everybody would love to have trams here. Why do not all cities in the UK have trams? There needs to be a multimodal approach to the DFT's policies for the future in terms of actually answering the questions that the populace has to how do we get around over the next 50 years? And that isn't one set of 
transport. Like it's multi, it's a multiple yeah, issue. Uh, uh, you know, and, and often you get you, you always get that report of oh oh, but I I need a car to get to my location. My, my. It's like yeah, sure, <laughs> fine. If you live in the in if you live out in the sticks and you need a car, fine. Your de- your old defender, your old petrol or diesel defender. Uh, I don't think there was ever a petrol defender. Your old diesel defender is fine. That's the emissions that it's kicking out are trivial. It's the bulk suburban commute and and the amount of traffic that travels long distances as well that is result that results in all those emissions. It's not the it's not the odd people who live out in the sticks uh, no. here and there. Uh, so you would, no one's coming and taking your cars. Uh, we'll kind of touch on that again as as ever with news articles. I try and kind of make this kind of flow a bit. Anyway. Uh, the, the reason this is worrying is not just about the, the environmental pollution. It's not just about the geopolitics. Um, it's not just about in, kind of continuing to to throw money at an industry that is an awful industry, lithium mining industry, and just mining in general is awful. Um, but entrenched car culture is it like the fact that people have to rely on cars means that millions of British people are trapped in transport poverty um, because of the lack of alternatives. This is, you know, continue to have this idea that, and, and uh, some klutz that I have muted um, on Twitter continues to say, oh, you know, your anti-car stance is actually anti-worker and anti-poor people. Mate, it isn't. If you have a look at the demographics of people who, have, who own cars, the ones who rely on their car, are, or sorry, the ones who are who, the highest car ownership, the ones who rely on car, generally better off people. People who are worse off are the ones who do not have it. They either do not have a car or they struggle to to kind of pay for and and, and keep running the car. So anyway, yeah, this and, and and you know, car culture is 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 not just about poverty as well. It's the fact that we've got our towns and public spaces are kind of occupied by vehicles. Uh, air pollution in towns is horrible. The best the stuff the stuff that's nicest like uh, sorry sorry go on Bonnie. I mean, look, I, I don't think there's a shortage of anyone during in between lockdowns of covid when towns were pedestrianized so that many businesses could open out onto roads i didn't hear a single complaint of well this used to be a road and i liked it better as a road everything i heard from everyone wheelchair users people with canes people who are fully ambulant was isn't it so nice to be able to walk everywhere safely and you know it's not so noisy and smells bad and that was a constant it was a constant comparison I had for, you know, the city of Norwich, city of London, city of Manchester, where I was visiting relatives in between lockdowns was, oh, it's so nice to be able to yeah. walk everywhere now. And it could it, and I kept trying to explain it could always be like this. Yeah, 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 it could be. Said, yeah. Hey, can we can we just keep it like this? Thanks. I mean, you know, we're looking at America in terms of the, you know, the fact that, um, you know, vast swathes of America is all built car centric. Yeah. And you look at the absolute swathes of parking lots that's just so unnecessary and such a waste. But also it makes people miserable. It's yeah. not it's not it is a demonstrable fact that, you know, like Paris building the 15 minute cities around Paris in terms of being able to get everything you need within 15 minutes is a really good idea. And we need I think personally, we need to move towards that and get rid of the fact that, oh, I want to do a big shop and I live in a city. I'll have to drive half an hour away. Yeah. That's yeah, one hundred percent. And it's it's yeah, it's just deeply. In, um, Paris Marx, they, they, they've, their their book um, uh, about uh, particularly about Silicon Valley and uh, and transport. Um, but the I'd say that the exploration that they go into about 
the impacts of and the decisions, the policy decisions that were made by the auto industry and the impacts of that on, on society, on, the, on, on, on all sorts of parts of society are, are pretty stark. Um, yeah, Martha Lauren. Uh, hello, Martha. Uh, also, let's not forget that predatory car loans are one of the, mo- the foremost ways for low income people to end up in debt bondage. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, let us... Uh, James Derrick, it's not a lobbyist talking point to say that EVs are bad. Like, they, they might be the future for cars, but cars are bad, which means EVs are bad. Um, it's but again, the problem is, though, then you have that blanket statement of cars are bad that then enrages the other side of the argument. We're not saying cars are bad full stop. We're saying the right mode of transport for the right person. That's like saying all drugs are bad. Well, actually, no, sometimes paracetamol is needed. And, you know, sometimes morphine's needed if you've broken your leg it's about the right transport mode for the right situation rather than lazily putting this blanket of oh we're going to rely on evs and you know self-driving cars that don't exist yet because that makes our job easier and we don't need to write a proper policy then i just find it incredibly irritating that our taxes are paying for these people within the dft whom i'll be i'll be frank aren't doing their job but it's it's not going to be their problem because this is in the future and they don't have to worry about it i just uh, Tim Ballam is saying, have you watched any Not Just Bites? Actually, Tim, I haven't, but I know that... The... Shout out to Not Just Bites. They, they create good stuff. Richard Smith is saying, our cities also just don't have the space for all these cars, uh, which progressively shove their way down any road available and moment parking restrictions are imposed. Yeah, absolutely. Right, okay. And constantly very irresponsibly parked, which means people who are using a wheelchair or using a pram have to go in the road and have to take longer routes. And again, other people suffer for somebody else's convenience. Yeah, the fact that we continue to not have... like. The fact that we continue to have pavement park, the, 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 pavement parking is, in theory, is is currently illegal, but it's never enforced. Right. And um, as someone who's going to be pushing a buggy around a lot over the next year, um, I will be, be uh, I'll be increasingly uh, angry about cars that are parked on pavements, uh, and I might have to redact it with a, a set of redacted uh, when I pass uh, these cars. Um, uh, yeah, Martha Lawrence saying Jason's good. Watch uh, watch not just bikes. Thanks, Martha. Good uh, good recommendation. Right. So and on the theme of that, we're talking about options and about the fact that people don't have options. Uh, Tom Forth has ever doing the Lord's work. Um, the Netherlands are about the size of Northern England in terms of kind of population and, and density and size. So they actually make quite interesting comparisons. So, you know, an entire country uh, compared to North England. And he did a thread fairly recently. Actually, it wasn't fairly recent. It was at the end of December. But it was um, kind of talking about various transport elements. The fact that Northern England runs many more buses than the Netherlands, but it runs almost no trams. Uh, you know, apart from you know, Manchester and that's it, uh, Blackpool. So it's hardly any trams by comparison. But critically, and the one that I suppose is interesting for us on, our, on uh, as, as a good overall summary for the fact that suburban transport, in terms of outside of London, suburban transport in the UK is rubbish. Um, and uh, yeah, so the example he gave is that um, the Netherlands runs approximately a quarter more trains than Northern England. Um those trains are much larger, more likely to be electric. They are, on average, older, which is an interesting little little tidbit. And they, uh, actually, from an environmental perspective, that's a good thing. We should be running our trains for longer. That's the whole point of trains, that they, they last for longer. Um, and they carry approximately twice as many passengers, which is quite interesting. So it's it's that, that, that idea of the fact that we have so many short little two-car trains bobbing about, in, in certainly north of England, uh, on routes that probably should have six-car trains or more. Um, yeah, always interesting. And as I say, the UK has pretty good, or, or GB rather, has pretty good intercity rail travel. Uh, our city services are pretty good. 
we have pretty good rural services as well. Actually, they might not go everywhere that people want their trade. People might not get have have their rural trade anymore. Where there are rural railways, they actually run pretty well compared to mainland Europe. The bit that, that our, of our rail network that's rubbish is suburban connectivity. It's it's that kind of in and around cities, like the equivalent of London Overground, but not in London. Um, Bonnie, you've got the benefit of and a fantastic series of suburban transport networks that you can rely on uh, in and around London. Um, although I did enjoy, and I didn't put it on here because I wasn't. I did enjoy that people that, that, that there's a news story today. Tom Edwards from the BBC saying that people are moaning about Crossrail, which is quite fun. Did you see that one? No, I, I didn't. But what are they moaning about now? <laughs> This is funny. So, firstly, they're moaning that it's overcrowded. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, new train service. It's popular immediately and it's very busy. Um, oh, how unreasonable. They're, they're, they're moaning about the fact that it's been, you know, it's been a bit unreliable and, you know, they have to wait 10, 15 minutes for a train, um, these sorts of things. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not one to say that, that we should deny London things to give everywhere else. No, absolutely not. But... Crossrail's very good, and I and I and I, as John Ellidge said, those people should attempt to get between Leeds and Manchester on a on a Tuesday morning, and they would probably stop complaining about Crossrail, which is pretty brilliant. And also, it's still kind of opening, so you, you it is going to be a little bit bitty because it is sort of still in the process of being finished um, operationally. But anyway, I think, uh, I think well, perhaps a lot of people as well don't appreciate in terms of like the London versus north spend that sort of has become a bit of an issue in terms of again I, I just feel this is a failure of policy and government to highlight the fact that there needs to be a spend everywhere then there isn't a oh we're not going to spend money on northern transport and the northern powerhouse link because we're going to have to do crossrail crossrail was in the works for a very long time that's just an excuse yeah. um and I, I i just find it a i don't know i'm probably gonna sound a bit tin hat i find it a very good way of dividing people who ultimately want the same thing oh yeah yeah no 100 percent. yeah yeah, yeah. And, and, and it came out during crossroads so there when, when cross i think i put this in the new i think when did i did i moan about this in, the, in a previous news episode anyway there was um so like crossrail is good london should have crossrail just like other part other cities in the uk should have expanded public transport like crossrail is very good it's excellent and riding on it is fun and it's just you ride in it and you look at the stations like yeah this is what public transport should be like it's brilliant um at the same time, uh, it like it's very frustrating to see government going. Look at Crossrail, isn't it wonderful? Uh, how brilliant it is! Look at all the benefits it has, whilst also not investing in that sort of uh, of, of system elsewhere. So yeah, it, it, it's it's hugely frustrating. I mean, uh, I was so frustrated when they they shelved Crossrail too. Yeah. Given given the state of the Northern Line. The, down the, in the irony is that the, of the three major transport projects that have been in the works for multiple decades in London. Um, essentially the equivalent of what ended up being the, the Jubilee Line extension, uh, Crossrail and Crossrail 2. Um, Crossrail 2 is the one that was the most important to un unlocking capacity on the network. Crossrail 2 was actually the one that was, that was more critical uh, and needed to be delivered the earliest and had the best benefit-cost ratio. But politics, it just shows that benefit-cost ratios are a political tool and a waste of time uh, because... The, the the Jubilee Line extension, which by far had the weakest um, uh, case, although you know we wouldn't have it any other way. You know, it's it's it, it's good that it exists. Uh, that that happened first, of course. Um, so, you know, strange strange old world. But uh, yeah, Owen O'Neill points out the fact that Londoners are moaning about it demonstrates perfectly that it's become an accepted part of the fabric of London's public transport. Yeah, pretty quickly. Uh, agreed, Owen. Um, 
Uh, Robin Weston, Crossrail's amazing. I rode it when, uh, when in London last year. It may be really sad, though, that it wasn't an ongoing rolling plan of amazing cross-city rail links in big cities. Yeah, agreed. Um, yeah, very frustrating. Anyway, so, what else? Oh, I, I, it, we will have a happy one soon, Bonnie, honestly. But uh, no, for now, it's, it's not a happy one. Which is, so we had, you know, everyone remembers, because we did a rail nat on it, we did the Bus Back Better report, which was Boris Johnson's uh, bus report about making buses better, which was actually quite a good report, hence why it got uh, thrown in the bin by Treasury uh, about a year later. Um, and, you know, we're talking about, you know, bus services needing to improve and, and all the discussions about levelling up, and yet we've had... Oh, indeed, Louise Haig here, um, uh, excellent Shadow Transport Secretary, uh, quoting Grant Shapps in March 2021, our special boy, Grant Shapps. The podcast, every podcast gets um, allocated a, a, a token Tory, uh, a token Tory MP. So Trash Future have Matt Hancock um, and uh, the, the Rail Matter has Grant Shapps. So Grant Shapps in March 2021, we'll not only stop the decline in bus services, we want to reverse it. Uh, the reality is that one in 10 bus services have been axed over the last year. That's absolutely bonkers. One in 10 is just wild. We talk about multimodality. Um, buses are an absolutely critical, arguably the most critical element of our, you know, railways might be the backbone, but buses are the feeder that get most people onto the public transport, into our public transport system and around. Um, and the idea that 10, the one in 10 local bus services have been axed is I just, it's just baffling, absolutely baffling. Um, I think the thing is, with, with the policies that are coming out and the sort of emotional whiplash from going we're doing this we're not doing this we're doing that we're doing that the last couple of years where the government has changed so much in terms of who was actually at the helm you know when when you mentioned about the report for the buses it feels like a lot of things like that are getting axed even though they have very good merit because of the person that wrote them rather than actually the subject and i i just i, well, I, is, I feel like is... you and i behave like this in our jobs we i know have... well this is why we need <laughs> transport policy it, it just transport po- if, if transport policy was evidence-based if it was properly evidence-based and driven by evidence rather than by political whimsy, then you would it wouldn't matter that you had political cycles because it would always stay the same because the evidence is the same and the and, and the and the needs are the same. The challenge is is that our policy that, that transport policy is absolutely beholden to the to political cycles and it shouldn't be. Uh, people might people might challenge that and say, well, it's not democratic if you pull transport policy out of the out of political cycles and depoliticise it. And I say, you can't, I, you can't plan transport to change wind directions every four years between Tories yeah. and Labour. Let's say every four years it changes. You know, similar to the American system where it changes every four years. Then you have a change in funding every four years. It takes longer than every four years to nationally plan even just the maintenance never mind upgrading never yeah. mind increasing capacity just the maintenance alone that's yeah i fully agree with you it needs to be taken out of political spectrum and it's, it's yeah uh, and the way that you then you know and then and then you know put, uh, the other thing of course is you devolve it what, what you devolve those decisions down, out so that it's not central government um you devolve it to and there's been the 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 what is it? The north of England, the the north, the Great Northern Council. I don't know what it's called. There was a, a big meeting today where lots of leveling up stuff was being discussed, and Andy Street and Andy Burnham and all sorts of people were talking about devolution. And 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 as ever, there's lots of talk about real devolution. So that means a funding settlement going to uh, devolved authorities. But until that happens, we're just going to see this continual political pandering. Because actually, when you have the control at a, a city level or a regional level. Those that that those political whimsies don't you don't they don't surface. You don't generally you'll find that things 
do actually perpetuate. You, know, you end up because the the reality is that the transport needs for a city don't change. You know, it's like no, we still need all the transport stuff. It doesn't change whether you know. Generally, it'll be a, a mayor or or a or the council will change, but it will not. It, it will continue to deliver that kind of long term plan of stuff. Um, so. Oh, lots of chat here. Uh, I, I presume the West of England combined authority is what Weka is. Weka has just pulled funding from most of their subsidised services, says SB Trains, Planes and Drives. Uh, Cookie Monster. Hello, Cookie Monster. Cookie. Um, <laughs> we will never get multimodal city journeys if first bus and first Great Western Rail in Bristol can't sort out a multimodal ticket. Absolutely. Um, uh, also here at some points, some routes had only 25% of buses out on the road, which has driven passengers away. Um, absolutely, yeah. Um, the American system has the advantage that our transportation funding is distributed across federal, state, and local governments. The disadvantage is that any of those levels can initiate service cuts. Well, indeed, John Christoph, yeah. So, uh, what's next in our travails? Oh, yeah, we talk about long-term planning. Well, this I spotted this. Mark uh, Tudor-Jones um, here, uh, kind of a geographical and planning expert, has pointed out that a document, a white paper from August 2020 that was supposed to be part of resolving... Um, sort of general planning issues and, and, and helping to partly helping to tally and tie housing developments into transport. Um, this white paper, they've, it's been in consultation for a while. Um, government have quietly archived the entire set of files and made it go away. So yet again, another, another thing to actually think about strategizing for the future and think about tying transport and housing and and, and, and retail and, and, and general urban sprawl and urban you know, generally tying urban growth and transport together has been shel- uh, shelved as a, it would be at least you could still use it. No, they, they've, they've archived it and made it go away. Um, great. Do you remember this thing? Do you remember this coming out? Life? Who doesn't want to spend their life sat on a train trying to get everywhere they need to be? I don't know about you. I'd love to be on trains for six hours a day going between my job, the doctor's office, maybe my grocery shop. Why Why not? Let's just all have our time on transport, constantly sat in traffic and on trains and on buses. I've always said that all trains, you could, you, could, you could put a Tesco on one, uh, you could have one coach as, as like a Sainsbury's local. So you, you get on the train, you get to, you, you pick up your wasabi microwave meal on from the uh, Sainsbury's local, you know, I'm, I'm all for it. That, that'd be great. Um, yes. Oh, so uh, yeah, everyone's just pointing out their various regions where, um, uh, local bus subsidies were cut by 100%. Uh, Martha Lauren pointed out that Cumbria cut its local bus services uh, subsidies by 100%. Uh, that should be illegal. Yeah, well, the thing is, it's like these subsidies, these, like the subsidy they give, this is the daft thing about bus, the deregulation of bus services in the UK, is that that subsidy goes to a company that makes, that makes a profit. You know, that subsidy is going to a company that then makes a profit. So why... Why not just run it in? Just run it in house. Just run bus services in. Uh, anyway, I mean, on on bus subsidies. Just before we move on. Mm. So obviously, I was born and raised in London, and then at fifteen, I moved out to rural Kent. I appreciate it's not a million miles away, but it is if you are a teenager. So <laughs> yeah. I I went from having two tube networks in Wembley and twenty four hour buses all the time to having one bus an hour for six hours of the day, and that being it. And because of obviously my working class family situation, everybody around me drove, but I couldn't afford to drive. I couldn't afford to learn. I, you know, it was not a thing that happened in our house. I was not going to be driving. But then as a result of that, I couldn't get a better job or a proper job when I was at college because I couldn't get home because there was no bus service. So it's again, that perpetuating issue, especially, you know, obviously in places like Cumbria where there, you know, 
they would not be as fortunate as I was in Kent, where there was obviously a lot more work. If you're in more regional places like Cumbria, where it's Cumbria, where it's a lot more rural, again, it takes people's choices away and further traps people into their financial situation that might not be a good one. And it just irritates me because it feels insidious when they're cutting 100% of services. Again, I know I sound a little bit of tin hat, sort of foil hat person, but I just don't see how it could possibly be accidental when you've got various uh, you've got various areas across the UK that don't have a Conservative MP in power that are suffering the most. Yeah. Yeah, and we're yeah, all expected quite. to go, oh, well, I guess that's just how the cookie crumbles. I guess we'll have to get on with it. I just find it an absolutely disgusting way and to it, govern people. And it, invariably, as Owen O'Neill points out, invariably you'll find that the that the uh, that local authorities can't avoid to subsidise any buses, but they can afford to provide free car parking in the town centre, uh, which is essentially a massive subsidy of, of, of public space. Absolutely. Oh. I'd love to know a reporter that tells us how much... How oh, much be good, isn't it? Yeah, how much do they subsidise buses? How much do they subsidise car parking? Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, right, some happy news. We, we, we're going to do happy news for a bit. Um, because uh, the latest design manual has been published by uh, Anthony Jura and Frank Anatoly um, and Nick Job, uh, aka Double Arrow, because the new rail symbol is here. The new rail symbol has arrived, which is very exciting. Here it is. You might think, oh, it looks the same as the other one. But no, there are quite a lot of subtle differences to this one. Um, and I am very, very pleased and excited about it. Um, this is something that everyone should be very happy about because... This is a very important symbol. It's an iconic symbol, um, and it's one that has been rather abused for the last 20, 30 years. Um, you know, all the fat ones that we see. There's a fantastic Beauty of Transport blog, actually. In fact, there's two things I want to talk about. Firstly, uh, yes, Real Symbol 2 is here. Fantastic. Uh, Nick Job, a.k.a. Double Arrow, has done a nice little thread, which I'd recommend going and finding, where he explains the new, ar- the new arrows and, and explains the logic of it. Um, things like its aspect ratio has been adjusted from a, a bonkers 38 to 23 down to 8 to 5, so it's kind of more of a sensible aspect ratio and little tweaks to the geometry to just make it slightly more geometric for the digital era. Um, but go and go and find the um, uh, go find the uh, the beauty of transport blog, uh, which is in that thread actually. It's in it's in the, the Twitter thread that's on screen, and I forgot is literally on screen. Uh, yeah, go find that thread and you can have a read of it. It's it's a lovely piece, well worth a read. But uh, yeah, that's very exciting. And hopefully we'll get Nick Job on. We'll get Double Arrow on to talk about it because you know why not? We need some happy stuff to talk about, right? Uh, here's a brief, quick one. Uh, I just needed to get some payway on screen, Bonnie. Uh, Lewisham's double crossover has been uh, renewed, first time in quite a while. Um, this big, enormous pig of a layout. Um, uh, and also, of course, what makes it even more fun is that it's a third rail layout as well. So not only is it an immensely complicated double crossover, but it's third rail. It's bonkers. Um, but here it is. Here's the view of it from above if, uh, in its previous guise. Uh, I, love if wants third to know rail. I love third rail because it's what I learned first. So I, I'm like, ooh. oh, no, I, I like third rail. It makes sense to my brain, which people look at me like. I'm no, it doesn't. It blows holes in you if you touch it. And it, it, it floods. <laughs> Don't touch it. And it requires a substation every mile and a half. No, oh, boo to third rail. Also, it's a nightmare for John. Look, look, at, look how many rails are here. Uh, it's like learning. It's like learning to drive a car, right? If you learn to drive an automatic first, you're always going to find that easier. So this is what I'd compare to learning on an automatic <laughs> car first. <laughs> Oh, dear me. Yes, yes. So anyway, there we are. Lewis, Lewisham's double crossover has been renewed. Uh, that's that's it in its old version, everyone, uh, just in case you're wondering. But uh, there it is. Happy days. Um, and uh, you'll like my, my headline for this one, Bonnie. Uh, brand washing in action. Eurostalis 
is now official. So Talis and Eurostar, well, actually, Talis bought Eurostar, I think. I think that's the way around it was. Um, but Talis has a dreadful reputation in Europe. Like, it's a really bad reputation. So the, the, the purchase and the fact they're renaming the whole lot Eurostar, firstly, it kind of makes sense. The Eurostar name is a kind of a cool one. Um, secondly, it's definitely brand washing because they want to kind of make the Talis bad reputation slightly go away a bit. Um, but the, the so they're using the Talis typeface-ish and then they've invented a new sort of logo-y thing here. There you are. To call it, call it Eurostar. I, I, you know, first, Bonnie, what do you think first? I don't like it. You don't like it. <laughs> yeah. So here, here's the two side by side. Here's a Talis and a, and, a, and a Eurostar next to each other. I mean, I don't like change anyway. But also, <laughs> was it really needed, you know? Like, given that Eurostar are having problems in terms of, you know, carrying almost a third fewer passengers, which came out on the BBC at time of recording 18 hours ago, um, in terms of carrying, you know, 30% fewer passengers due to bottlenecks in stations, was this really the problem to focus on? As a, as a, as a fee-paying passenger, I look at this and think, okay... Why are you wasting time with a rebrand when you're having severe operational problems, meaning that a third of your passengers are not on their seats when your train departs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That just that mean that for me that makes me think I do not trust what is going on within the organisation to properly prioritise operational issues. Yeah, and and, and um, yeah, as a few people, oh, well, uh, Richard Smith. Uh, regular regular visitor to the show richard smith's pointing out overall it's an improvement on the current design uh the star logo is good um but text is bad and i'm worried about their wider plans so so richard smith likes the logo but is worried about the wider talis slash eurostar or eurostalis uh, plans agreed uh I'm probably, being, I'm probably being unfair i mean the logo is fine it's just the overshadowing the fact that on like the same day it's coming out about the third of the passengers it just makes me not even really care about the rebranding yeah, uh, yeah. There are serious problems on both of these services uh, at the moment. Serious, serious problems. Um, the star logo looks like the Church of England logo, says Gareth. Um, Gregor McCabry is asking, "What is that sticking out bit on the Eurostar?" Oh, that's the that's the that sticks out. That's the front of the the, the coupler. So when it's the shell a, opens, a left say again. It's called a left phalange. Oh crikey! Uh, yeah, no, both it's, not. it's a reference from Friends. It's not it is a reference a left from Friends. Yeah, the, the, the technical <laughs> element of that it's a left phalange. No, it's a uh, it's the it's a bit that hooks into the the cup the the, the coupler. Um, I think it's Delner, isn't it? Wait a minute. What coupler do I IETs have? IET coupler. I've been through this journey before. Uh, 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 oh, uh, class eight hundred coupler. Wait a minute. I'm I'm, I'm googling. On the fly, Delner. Yeah, it's a Delner. So that's a Delner coupler, and the little loop at the front enables the connection. People are going to correct me and say it's not a Delner coupler. Now you watch. Uh, the, the Valaro is looking a bit haggard. I love the fact they picked a they picked a train which has got like a mucky roof. Uh, it's got like they, they've clearly had to like something's walloped it, and they've they look like they've had to do some additional work, some sanding work on the corner. Yeah, it's looking a bit haggard given yeah. that it's a fairly new train. Um, well, I, I have setting expectations low now. <laughs> I know, I know. I have, I have other. Th so I don't mind. I mean, yes, the logo looks a bit like a cat's anus, but I don't mind. I, I don't, I don't necessarily hate it. I, I, I presume it's because the the board of Talis um, are interested in expanding a caliphate of some kind because it does look very much like the Turkish flag. I don't know why. It just reminds me a lot of the Turkish flag. It's just, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, nah, I, I think it's, it's. 
it's pff, whatever. I I think they're they're bigger bigger problems afoot. I think it makes sense to merge them under one name. Eurostar makes sense as the name. Talis doesn't really mean anything to anyone. But um, uh, yeah, there are bigger problems. Some people are saying, okay, they're, 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 uh, Eurostar are going to they're going to unban bicycles. That would be good. But I think there are bigger bigger issues with the way these these trains operate. Anyway, there we are. Shout out to Turkey, uh, Boo Erdogan. Um, right. So, oh, right. We're nearly at the end. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're, we're nearly at the end, Bonnie. Uh, so. <laughs> good time having a good time uh this this is an interesting one again i like to pick up bits of transport policy or transport research that are kind of interesting um lots of people who don't like low traffic neighborhoods uh, moan that it pushes traffic onto boundary roads and a study has found that that is not true because what actually happens um and this is a concept that's well understood is that if you make it more unpleasant to if, if you generally kind of dissuade drivers from driving those cars disappear. They don't move elsewhere. They just disappear. Um, it's called uh, it's called traffic evaporation, and it's a thing that we've understood for quite a long time. Um, it's the op- It's essentially the opposite of induced demand. If you make tra- driving less pleasant, it's not just that cars will do it to pick a different route. They'll disappear. They just won't exist. They'll, they'll, people will cease to drive uh, overall. They'll they will find a different way to travel. So. Um, particularly in London, where you have lots of alter- viable alternatives. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting bit of research. Um, go and find it. Uh, Rachel Aldred and uh, and the team uh, have done this research. Damn, Rachel Aldred. Uh, Bonnie, it's your turn to research. It's your turn to Google people again and tell me who they, who they work for. I'll, I'll just do it here. Ra- Rachel Aldred. There we go. British researcher. Professor of Transport at the University of Westminster and director of the Active Travel Academy. There you are. Shout out to Rachel Aldred. Um, who is on Twitter? You can follow Rachel. Um, yeah, block vehicular access, cars disappear, which is good news. Ah, right. So um, this is a nice one. This is some very good news, which is that the um, the, the 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 Mersey Rail triple uh, sevens are here. Hooray! Um, with all of the good things about them, like mostly level boarding, also that they're new and they've replaced what were some of the oldest trains running on the British Rail network. Um, they are finally here. The, the arrangement has been made that they can now be running. And they are brilliant trains. Absolutely brilliant trains. Um, oh, um, I like I, how they accessible they looked just there. So yes. I see on the, on the right-hand side when the door opens, obviously you've got the second part coming out so there's yeah. not much of yeah, a gap, there's a gap filler. people who use wheelchairs and walkers and things these like that trains, yeah these Which... trains so exactly so i did a bit of a review of these trains um in oh when did i do a review of these trains actually it was in the episode it was it was not in episode 31 it was in a real live episode not the last real live episode but the one before where i had a go on the triple sevens and it was good fun um but if you want to understand why the introduction of the triple seven is really important go back and watch episode 31 on level boarding because these trains are really important the the greater anglia stadlers um are have the same kind of low floor but they have not been introduced as part of a systemic approach to delivering level boarding they've just been delivered on a network where some of the platforms are compliant height but lots aren't so this episode is is, is one to go and understand why the triple introduction of the triple sevens is so important because there was a rolling program of, of correcting the platform offsets um uh, and oh, by the way, to those who there's someone who's been watching through all the rail natters and giving long, very long comments under each of them. I appreciate the effort. And um, to to you who's watching that, if you're watching this one, if you're also watching the latest ones, in answer to the question of uh, can you not correct the track more cheaply than correcting the platform? When I say correcting platform offsets, I just mean correcting the distance between the rails and the platform edge. That might be adjusting the track. It might be adjusting the platform. It could be either. Anyway, 
Um, so that's what was done uh, on Merseyrail. So that's very exciting. Uh, seeing this, the, as you say, level boarding trains, they've got loads of space for all sorts of stuff. They've got buggy areas. They've got wheel, really good wheelchair accessibility. Um, they're just they're just nice. There's, there's, these are all the kind of videos that Merseyrail were excitedly posting on the day. Um, the, the one that gave me the feels was actually, fun enough, uh, the one with the, the, the family who managed to get their buggy onto the train easily because it, they didn't have to lift it up a 300-millimeter uh, pole vault gap. Anyway, so that's that's good news. Uh, on the flip side of that, this was I spotted this at the end of last year, um, or maybe it was, maybe it was at the start of this year actually. Which is there's a disability uh, or an accessibility campaign group in Seoul who've essentially been banned from travelling by train um, uh, and kind of as part of a pretty major protest. Um, and yeah, so hmm. what were um, the reasons that they were given? That they were banned. Oh, they, so they were doing a protest. There's but, always a fluffy. There's always like a fluffy PR reason, right? Rather well, everyone has to remember that South Korea is actually pretty authoritarian as a country. Uh, we kind mm -hmm. of forget because we assume it's Westernized and that it's not authoritarian. But actually, South Korea is a pretty authoritarian state. And these people were camp. They were they were um, uh, protesting a lack of investment in in um, in in accessibility on public transport and we're doing when we're kind of doing protests by going on and off trains and pointing out you know and, and blocking a train where they didn't have access um and this annoyed government and some commuters and so they got the police in to just stop them uh, and have said yeah, that, that they'll find them five million um south korean cash um if they uh, continue to do this um which to be fair would happen in the uk as well if if, if the campaign for level boarding uh, decided to do hard protesting um we'd also end up with a with a with a banning order and, and probably a big fine because the uk is also quite authoritarian um so yeah so the, the people are still fighting you know in terms of places across the world where this is still a challenge it's, it's a challenge in lots of places and people know it's a challenge um so the solutions are good yeah but that fine works out over three grand per person per fine if it's a five million south korean exchange rate in terms of the exchange rate to the uk that's still just over three thousand pounds for someone who lives a disabled life in Korea, in South Korea, which is not really a proportional fine, is it? Let's be honest. No, it's not. It absolutely is not. No. Just, um, again, it, it pushes people who already, you know, again, I'm going to assume who already, you know, have problems in terms of their finances due to the fact that they are disabled in a non-disabled catering society. Money, I'm going to assume, is probably tight, and therefore it's a fine that people cannot afford, which really. If it's a fine that only impacts people who are who are uh, who are poor, it's not really a, a fine, is it? It's a tax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as people pointing out, yes, no, I know South Korea is not the most authoritarian part of the Korean Peninsula. Yes, thank, thanks for <laughs> uh, yes. But um, uh, and, and, and someone else pointing out, not to get tanky or anything, but why would uh, being Westernized ever make it not authoritarian? Good point. Um, <laughs> yes. Anyway, point. so. Um, Let's end on a happy note, which is that more of those lovely Stadlers are inbound because the Tyne and Weir Metro um, is seeing its new train fleet arrive uh, in the not-too-distant future. Gosworth Depot being uh, kind of ongoing construction there. My colleagues are kind of in the process of designing, uh, finalising the stage design for that. It's been a very complicated design, but it's been a fun one. Um, and uh, yeah, here is uh, here is one of those nice trains sat next to a fun uh, overhead electrified rack rail um train which is quite fun i just like this picture i think it's a nice picture these two little happy trains next to each other having fun um yeah so i'm excited to see more of the uh more of the um stadler metro type fleet you know these stadler suburban trains rolling out um which will be great because they're um they're great little trains um uh so 
There is. Uh, to answer your question, Bonnie, yes. Uh, we're, we're communicating by mess. I'm not coping very well with um, with, with multitasking here. but I, I, I'm so guilty of doing well. that, just WhatsApping people whilst they're presenting <laughs> and being like, why don't you do uh, four things at once? No? No? <laughs> Ah, uh, so, um, Tim, oh, actually, Tim Ballam is pointing out, in, in relation to this, Tim, I'll just point out, if the new law passes, that they they would get tagged for just talking about these protests on social media. Yikes. Um, yes. Um, uh, yeah, Adam Evans is saying, um, Westernized generally implies liberal democracy, but um, uh, uh, SK, South Korea, is owned by a small group of huge companies. Yeah, well, quite, to be fair, so is the US, and, and arguably you'd say the UK is as well. Uh, in the UK, it's the big four. Anyway, right. Um, AOB, uh, I, I'm not Bonnie. Uh, we can discuss. Let's go big face and discuss. Oh, you're just going to see my my fevered head, my shiny fevered head. Um, there was some other news that you spotted that actually was in today. Um, what's yeah. happened in Germany? Tell tell us about what's happened in Germany. So, um, so this broke at half past four uh, today's date, the 25th of January. If you're listening back um, on future podcasts. Um, so unfortunately, two people have died after a passenger has gone on a knife attack on a train in Germany. Um, so this train was from Kiel to Hamburg and was 3 p.m. local time, obviously, in Germany. Um, unfortunately, two people have died and uh, around 10 people have been seriously injured in that attack. Now, obviously, that's extremely upsetting. That's the news as of right now. Obviously, that story could change and evolve. But I do think there is a point to discuss in terms of security at major stations. And is is there an argument for higher security levels at major stations when people get on and off of trains? Yeah, so, I mean, um, my argument I mean, just, would always there be... Is a personal, sorry, yeah, sorry no, there, is a, there is a personal element to this for me. Um, so, obviously, we all remember the various terrorist attacks happening across London. Um, unfortunately, I was in the London Bridge, London Borough terrorist attack in London Bridge station coming out when it happened. So for me, this is something where that's why it came up on my phone, because I have it set to my my news feed and things like that to tell me. Um, otherwise, very helpful people go, did you hear about this in a panic, which is not good for my brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. you know, for me, I'm very curious what other people's opinions are, because I appreciate that I probably have a very skewed view of well, if we're just super secure, nothing can ever go wrong. But actually, that's not necessarily a balanced view. So I'm really curious what your view is on that, Gareth. And also, you all, dear listeners. Yeah. Um, for me, I think that one of the challenges on, um, well, when it comes to security, the the, the, the thing that often caught, you know, a, a, a more equal society, a, a healthier society is one that invariably has less of this sort of thing happening. So the, the key thing is... Um, make people have you know make people less desperate by not screwing them over by not reducing their universal credit by not generally just making more people exist in society who are really desperate that doesn't solve the problem of course but it massively reduces the chances that that that, that a bad event can happen um but i think one of the one of the ways that you can kind of manage some of the this stuff is 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 firstly by people feeling I mean, it's it's really one of the, and this comes to kind of a broad, much broader picture of of people feeling safe and secure on trains generally, uh, and particularly women uh, feeling safe and secure on trains actually. And staff presence is certainly an important thing, an important part of it. I think having staff presence on trains, so there's someone that people can go and speak to. Um, I think that's really important, um, particularly for long distance trains, uh, regional trains. Um, yeah. But I, but it's it's difficult because I think. The the the, th- the last thing we want to do is introduce more rigorous security. Uh, you know, the security on that's on Eurostar. We were moaning about Eurostar earlier. There is no reason for Eurostar 
to have any of the security that it has on on board because you can drive onto the shuttle trains with your car and there's no security whatsoever for that on that process and that, in a way that that's quite off-putting you, you know, the fact that you're in a queue for an hour before you get on your train is quite off-putting we want to make trains more off-putting we want people as many people as possible to travel by train so yeah i i think in terms of managing security i think um you know ensuring that people are are looking out for things that don't look right um you know, keep an eye on, on, on someone it, it's a tricky one because I, I don't think the answer is more you know more british transport police hanging around I, I always feel uncomfortable when you see the british transport police hanging around with guns at big stations i'm not sure yeah um and and wayne cousins didn't have a gun and uh, who was btp and uh, he didn't have a gun and, and did kind of run in and, and tackled the terrorist uh that was at that was the london bridge it was wayne cousins for the london bridge attack wasn't it if i, if I remember that right was that right oh, Connie? i think, I think, I think you're right yeah. yeah i think you're right so it's 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 a, it's yeah it's a very difficult one i, I don't exactly there is a multi-element to it though in terms of you know our cctv across the network is not as good as it should be could be you know in order to seek prosecution when people are detained by members of the public because there aren't you know, for example, there's no conductor on board and yeah, somebody's yeah. been assaulted. Oh, the CCTV either, you know, was deleted or was not good enough of quality. And I just think things like that are just not remotely acceptable. I mean, you know, when I was doing research for Euston Station Upgrade, I was looking into uh, backwards motion detection where, let's say, Gareth, you had decided to steal a dairy milk from the WH Smiths and we caught you on your way out of the station. So I could click on your face and there is a program that you can use to backwards detect where you've been through the whole station in order to trace your movements if you've committed any other crime. And I think things like that, as long as they're being done responsibly, because obviously we don't want to get to the point where we're then over tracking people in terms of their whereabouts either. There is a balance. But at the moment, I don't feel safe on our public transport, not just as a woman, not just late at night. But in general, I do think there is a balance to be struck that I don't think we're striking at the moment in terms of the amount of sniffer dogs, for example, for County Lines drug running. There should be a lot more, in my opinion. You know, not only as a passenger do I feel really happy seeing BTP with a drugs dog walking through the station, walking through a train going, oh, brilliant. Things are it just makes me feel safer. But also it gives that external look for people who are doing organized crime that there is a stronger presence there than they necessarily thought i don't know i could be wrong but i was just curious yeah I, so there's, there's there's a few things firstly it's not i i, I want to catch with not wayne cousins that's the, i'm remembering the wrong wayne uh that's the that's the, the do, do not he is a bad person within the metropolitan oh, police oh god he's the other yes, one yes he's the one who murdered sarah everard um, oh no! I'm trying to find the name of the police officer who I'm re actually referring to because I met him. He's lovely, um, but I want to get his name right now uh, before I uh, awards uh, 2020 uh, British Transport Police. I'm just doing. You know, this is an on the fly. Uh, here we are. Uh, there we go. Um, there we are. I never. It'd be good if I was more organised at doing kind of uh, kind of planning these things. Let me just find. It's amazing how much it's been difficult for me to find. Oh, anyway, right, I can't find someone in the chat can drop me I who the name is. Someone is in the chat. Char was it Charlie Guigenhout? No. Uh, someone in the someone go at Richard Smith. Go 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 Google and find out who who the police <laughs> the BTP guy I'm, I'm talking about who who kind of tackled someone who was running yeah. around with a big knife. Um, 
Uh, it could be uh, who? No, it, I mean no. I don't. I don't think it is. It could be that. Guy. It's not that guy uh, who I met. Oh wait a minute. I've broken Skype. Wait a minute. Let me go. Uh, that might be my fault. Apologies. No, it's right. Uh, I, I, everyone, it's fine. Everything's going well. Wait, where is this? Yeah, Bonnie, you've switched your camera off. I think possibly. Uh, nope, quite. my camera's still on. Oh, how strange. I'll turn uh, it off and on again. Yeah, turn it off and on again. That's a, that's a good way to fix it. How odd. We've lost, we've lost Bonnie's face, everyone. Wayne Marquez, thanks, Richard. I was getting my way. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Technical difficulties. Uh, I'm not going to press the technical difficulties button. No, no I'm not going to do that. Um, uh, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. We've lost Bonnie's face for some reason. Skype is in a minute. Ah, no, it's me. I did it. It was, <laughs> it was because I tried to open the link. It was me. I fixed Apologies. it. Now. We're good. It's me oh, sending you links through Skype chat. Don't send WhatsApp. links through Skype chat, Bonnie. It breaks everything. <laughs> Thanks, Hi. everyone. Wayne Marquez. Yeah, there we go. So, right. Anyway, uh, let's get our two big faces up because I wanted to uh, actually make a serious point, which is um, the challenge, of course, with with more security, with more, you know, it's CCTV, whether it's more police, um, is that whilst that might feel safer to certainly, you know, you, you, it's a good example is, is you know, the, the Metropolitan Police in London right now, more police doesn't necessarily mean safer for everyone and no. actually a lot of parts of society feel a lot less safe when you have more police around so more staff potentially a good thing more station yeah. staff good thing more station staff around around um uh big stations for sure so reducing stash staff on stations bad more staff on stations good more even, police, even, even good. stations that are further out even stations yeah, that are yeah. further out i don't think should be unmanned yeah, because yeah, yeah. We don't, they want, are we don't want unstaffed stations knows are unmanned so it's the perfect place to go and you know, human traffic somebody at a station that is unmanned, where there's an unreliable service, where people will be stuck on a on a platform alone with nothing around them for miles. And because they don't have any other forms of transport and there's no bus for them to get, they are stranded. Absolutely. Yeah, John Christoph, you're, you're absolutely, absolutely right. I uh, agree on... Um, and, and you see this in the US is that invariably... And it's not quite... Well, I mean, it, it's, it's not as extreme in the UK, but invariably uh, along similar lines is that the challenge with more surveillance is... Um, who is it impacting on? In the US, it's black people pretty much uh, heavily, uh, and in London, similar. But so, yeah. so yeah, I think it's 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 about staffing. Uh, not not more security, not more security theatre necessarily, but more staff having it because it's also it's a it's a win win, right? You've staff who can be helpful. These staff can be helpful uh, if you've got a need to you know want to ask a question about how you get somewhere or you know you just want someone to have a chat to. Um, then it's it's good to have more staff around. So just have more staff um, on stations. That's that's that feels like a good step in the right direction. Um, uh, and of course, obviously in the UK, we're currently doing the opposite of that right now. So uh, good, marvelous. Anyway, right, Bonnie, uh, I'm gonna. It, we we went on by 18 minutes. Whoops, uh, I thought it was gonna that's be short. That's pretty good for us, I, though. I, I got excited. I know we've done better than normal, but anyway, right, okay. So, oh, as ever, everyone on audio me. Uh, thanks so much for listening, uh, everyone in the chat. Thank you. Uh, uh, as you can, t this has been a bit of a. Uh, Bonnie has kept me going in an episode where my brain is completely fried, and I, I've this whole episode I've just had beads of sweat pouring down my head. So sorry for everyone who's watched this on YouTube and had to experience that, uh, because I 
I think I've, I'm going through another fever right now, which is not good. I'm going to drink a huge amount of water and collapse face first into bed. Um, Patreon.com slash Gareth Dennis to, um, to, to pay for my paracetamol. Uh, PayPal.me slash Gareth Dennis uh, to also pay for my paracetamol. And GarethDennis.co.uk slash Discord to recommend that I take some paracetamol. Um, yes, uh, to all of you. Thanks to, uh, to all those who support and to those who continue in the chat. Uh, oh. um, next week, uh, it's a fairly quick and easy episode actually it's going to be a page turn but it's going to we're going to talk about modal shift we're actually going to talk about uh it's a, a green gauge 21 paper that was done for the high speed rail group um but it talks about modal shift and it, there's some quite interesting stuff in there that i think would be worth us picking out because you know uh when, when, when i talk about modal shift and and and, and release capacity in hs2 is how does that work so I, I figured it's a thing that we can sort of have a look at um so uh i uh on on that on that note, I'm going to go back to Bonnie and say, Bonnie, um, thank you so much. Thanks so much for keeping me uh, afloat on a, an episode where I might otherwise have just collapsed. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. It's always it's always fun to come on and uh, do the rail natters. I do enjoy it. Thanks. Yeah, well, we'll we'll have to ha- have you on again um, for a for for some more some more more plans afoot. And uh, yeah, uh, watch this space, everyone. That's all I'm saying. So, um, Bonnie. Everyone here, Jack Elliott's asking if this available uh, episode is available intravenously. Uh, not yet. Uh, we don't have the technology yet, but we we could we could attempt it. Okay, we're going to write a policy where everyone's going to get the po- the uh, podcast intravenously, even though the technology doesn't work yet. It's yeah, fine. exactly. We're going to write that policy based on magical intravenous podcasting. It really well. Yeah, that's it. That's a nice. And on that on that wonderful loop in tying us back to the start of <laughs> things. Um, I'm going to let Bonnie go. I'm going to go. Um, and uh, we'll see you all next time. Cheerio, everyone. Cheerio. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.